Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox. I'd like to welcome you to Compliance Into the Weeds, a podcast where, with Matt Kelly, the coolest guy in compliance, founder and editor of Radical Compliance, we take a deep dive into the weeds of a compliance or compliance-related topic. Before I get to this week's topic, uh, as you know, the Compliance Podcast Network is always on the lookout for new podcasts. Have you ever wanted to start a podcast but didn't know how? Well, if you've thought about it, please take a listen to this week's sponsor, One Stone Creative. If you are enjoying this show, you might enjoy hosting your own. As an expert in your field, you have skills, knowledge, and insight that can help you expand your practice, meet new people, and create amazing content to share with the world. In as little as two hours a week, you can dramatically change how you promote, fill, and position your business, and One Stone Creative can show you how. Learn more at onestonecreative.net. In this episode, Matt and I take on the always sexy topic of sub-regulatory guidance. We take a look at the remarks of Principal Deputy Associate General Claire Murray at Compliance Week 2019, where she talked about <clears throat> regulatory guidance, sub-regulatory guidance, what it means, and that in reality, sub-regulatory guidance that <clears throat> does not mimic law is simply paper. We use that as a starting point for our discussion about how compliance professionals are to interpret this language, what it means in light of the Evaluation of Corporate Compliance Program's 2019 guidance issued by the Department of Justice in April 2019, the enforcement actions, which talk about best practices, compliance programs, and other information that compliance practitioners receive from the Department of Justice. I know you will enjoy it. Into the Weeds is a part of the Compliance Podcast Network and a proud member of C-Suite Radio. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, back with Matt Kelly, the coolest guy in compliance and the founder and editor of Radical Compliance for another episode of Compliance Into the Weeds. Uh, Foreshadowing this podcast was Matt's Monday blog post, posted Sunday, and my Tuesday blog post about a article in the New York Times about uh, Boeing and the steps that uh, Boeing took, which led to the uh, 737 MAX situation that they currently find them in. Uh, Matt, you want to just take it from there? Yeah, sure, Tom. Um, So this article ran in the Sunday New York Times on what? I guess that's June 2nd. Uh, And I would encourage all compliance audit and risk management executives to go to the New York Times, find that article, read it, and contemplate it, um, because it's not so much was there ethical misconduct. And some people might say that there is. Uh, I don't know. But this broke down very methodically the chain of events in Boeing planning the 737 MAX and its design phase and the design changes And what I would say is like an accumulation of what seemed like immaterial risks at each point where uh, really the the big takeaway for me was that in such a highly complex organization, which Boeing is with such a complex project and designing a new jet, is that um, everybody was managing their own little risk in their own little silo and then lacked the ability to communicate to see the gigantic enterprise-wide risk of a crash failure that was building and building until it did happen. Um, And we can splice that out in many different ways, but that I think is really why this article is so good is because it shows this challenge of 
highly complex organizations trying to manage risk in every step, but they lack the communication ability to suss out the larger, bigger strategic risks or enterprise risks, whatever you want to call them, that sort of rise up out of the machine and exist for the whole company. And for somebody like Boeing, the whole company's risk is a plane crash, which is what happened. Um, so I love this article. And yeah, like you said, Tom, it's really fortuitous that we both wound up writing about it independently, which is a sign that you and I must just be like barking up the right tree. The other thing that uh, really struck me about this was, in addition to all of the points you raised, on uh, that obviously lack of oversight, but no one could step back at all and, as you said, see it from a true enterprise risk perspective. Uh, I didn't see anything in the article which would lead me to believe that there was a quarterback in charge, a, 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 a team at the top overseeing each component. Uh, I'm currently listening to a series on uh, the Apollo missions to the moon. And they, of course, uh, one of the focuses is on the mission control director. I don't see anyone in that position who can really uh, ask each uh, group to explain what they're doing and how it, uh, and then make the connections of those interactions. So uh, the, as, as you said, the siloed nature really led directly uh, to this disaster. Yeah. So let me uh, put this in some specific examples for everybody who's listening, who might not have read the article. Now the two plane crashes with the 737 max involved what they call the MCAS uh, system, which is an automated system that will kick in under certain circumstances that would point the plane's nose down to accelerate the plane so to get it out of a stall. That's what it's supposed to do. And when Boeing originally designed the MCAS system, it was going to operate under only very specific conditions, and it would need two different sensors to be operating and giving two different green lights at the same time to say, yes, we're in trouble, kick in the MCAS system. Had to be going very fast, and you had to be going at a certain angle. Um, so therefore, under that scenario, that was fine to have the whole system designed the way it was, and that was the original intent. And then at some point, Boeing engineers said, let's use this MCAS navigation system more often. So we're going to have it operate at high and low speeds and many different types of speeds. Okay, but remember what we had just said before, two different sensors, one about the angle, one about the speed. Well, now the thing about the speed, that's knocked out because we want it operating at many different speeds. So suddenly this system is all dependent on one specific sensor about the angle. And what happens if that sensor starts giving you false readings? Well, Originally, that would have been a very low risk because you still would have been going at very high speeds and the planes would have been able to recover. I don't get all the technical details, but if one sensor had fallen or failed, you'd still have this other parameter that was controlling this whole scenario. Now that we've changed it, if you have a system failure, because you're dependent on only one system or only one sensor, the risks from that failure increased dramatically, and that's exactly what happened with these two crashes of Lion Air and Ethiopia Air, is that angle sensor was starting to give false information. So the MCAS said, oh, time to point the nose down, even though that was not when they should have point pointed the nose down, and the pilots couldn't get the system out. But now I'll, I'll give you another example. So why couldn't the pilots have figured this out when those two airlines? Because 
the training manual did not include any discussion about this potential outcome. Well, why didn't it? Because nobody at Boeing said this was a dramatic change because it wasn't supposedly going to be a dramatic change. So if it's not a dramatic change, you don't need to reconsider, should we update the training? And they didn't update the training. And eventually somebody else at Boeing asked the FAA, can we delete the training about this MCAS because it's not like it's a material system? Because at some other point, long before, Boeing had decided we're not going to have the technical test pilot, that is a specific position, uh, fly these actual 737s. We're only going to have that person do these tests in simulators. Because that was a cost-cutting maneuver, and okay, cost-cutting maneuvers happen. Well, nobody thought when they were making that decision that many months later they would decide to do something else with the MAX where you would only rely on one sensor, and that would therefore increase the risks if the sensor fails. And you see where I'm going. I'm spinning this huge, complex, interwoven tail, and that's what they didn't see. Because everybody individually said, well, cost-cutting is okay. Well, using the MAX more often is okay. Well, you know, we don't need any more training because this isn't a significant change. Altogether, they created the conditions for a disaster. And that is what happened. And Boeing couldn't see it. Because its ability to communicate across the whole enterprise was not keeping pace with the complexity of the organization. That's, that's what stuck out at me. So let me see if I can unpack a couple of those points you raised, Matt, and uh, perhaps a couple of others. So first on the training, the thing that struck me about the training was that the uh, cost for additional training on a new system literally was millions of dollars. And the article mm-hmm. made clear, it, uh, in addition to it being a cost issue, Boeing was under tremendous pressure to bring this air, airplane to market uh, to compete with uh, the Europeans and Airbus, and that if uh, the full change had been disclosed to the FAA, then uh, an additional uh, amount of training would have had been made available to the customers, i.e. the national airlines who bought these planes. Uh, Number two was, uh, in addition to the lack of training, was, the, as you said, the removal of the information about the MAX system from the pilot's manual, so that even if a pilot had the time to refer to the manual in the middle of a crisis, which of course they never would, but even if they did, they would find nothing there. And the reason that uh, Boeing had it removed was, as you noted, that uh, Boeing was under uh, um, under the impression that the prior system was still uh, applicable, i.e. the two-point uh, sensor or two-factor authentication, if we can cross-cultural reference there, and that uh, by remo- uh, they didn't inform the FAA of the removal of the second sensor, so the FAA thought they were still operating under the same system. The third thing was that, uh, rather, uh, in the training that you mentioned for the test pilot with the simulation only, they couldn't recreate the error because uh, the system didn't kick on uh, at at low enough speeds, and then finally was the one sensor array itself was fraught with danger because there was no uh, backup, and uh, I think the word is uh, supporting control, but uh, perhaps uh, uh, there's another control word, but clearly the first control didn't work, which was the sensor, and the article pointed out that sensors, unfortunately, have propensities to be damaged in flight. 
whether it be debris, whether it be birds, whether it be uh, someone accidentally hitting it with a piece of luggage or anything else, that a sensor, one sensor is an inherently unstable uh, way to take reading simply because if the sensor uh, is broken or in other, way, other ways damaged uh, and doesn't work, it can lead to an incorrect reading. And then finally, uh, the point that I found the most troubling was near the end of the article when uh, after the first plane crash, um, uh, Boeing met with uh, U.S. pilots and the U.S. pilots said that they wanted to have additional uh, training on this um, system. And the Boeing response was, well, you don't need additional training because you, the pilots, are the backup. Uh, so we have the uh, the self-perpetuating anomaly that if the backup to the sensor is the pilots who haven't received training and don't know what to do in the emergency situation, um, it's certainly a recipe for disaster. Yeah, and, you know, I really, actually, I, li- I like that you and I have both gone down these rabbit holes about the complexity here because I am sure at least some of our listeners are saying, guys, you got to be kidding me. I checked out of listening to this two minutes ago because it's so convoluted. That is the point. Um, What really sticks out to me is regardless of whether Boeing had any nefarious intent in designing the MAX or cutting the costs or treating it the way it did. And some cynics will say that. And in the fullness of time, I don't know if we will or won't find out that there was any more cynical motives. I don't know. But even if there weren't, The point here is that modern large organizations can be enormously complex and each silo, and businesses have silos all the time, businesses need silos to be efficient and I respect that. Each silo might be trying to govern its own risks to the best of its judgment as it thinks, but if you don't appreciate that the decisions you make in your silo will change assumptions or conditions or lead to miscommunication with some other silo about their own risk analysis, now suddenly everybody is starting to drift from the bigger risk that the company is going to face. That's what people have to think about, is what is our biggest strategic or enterprise failure that we absolutely could not happen? What's a disaster? For Boeing or an airline, a crash. Disaster, period. That's the worst. Well, then, as a compliance or a risk officer, you should step back and think, okay, what are the communication failures or poor communication practices that might lead us to miss a risk of a crash? Or whatever else you know your own particular company is you know, has as its worst-case scenario. Step back and think, okay, how could we miscommunicate internally and allow that event to happen under our nose? That's the sort of risk analysis or reverse engineering of a risk assessment I think compliance, audit, and risk executives need to do. Um, I also think that we always talk about escalation procedures. You see a red flag and you have to run it up the chain of command. I'm all for escalation procedures to run something up. But really what strikes me about Boeing is this wasn't an escalation up risk. This was a communication or carrying across risk. So one department has decided on one thing, but nobody stopped to think, what are the consequences of that for this other department handling another part of the project? And it's not raising it up, it's raising it across or carrying it across. I don't even know, as you can tell, we don't have an easy shorthand phrase for what that carrying across procedure is. 
But that's what people need to think about. And actually, I'm going to dork out a bit here. Uh, COSO, with its internal control framework, it mentions this. COSO's internal control framework has 14 different principles. Uh, I'm sorry, 17 different principles. Principle 14 talks about communication across an enterprise. And it says, the organization internally communicates information, including objectives and responsibilities for internal control, necessary to support the functioning of internal control, which is a gobbledygook way of saying the company talks among itself and one part will explain to the other. This is why this is important. Do you understand? And the other part would say, yes, I do. And now I understand the consequences of what you're doing for me and for the whole organization. That's what has to happen. That is not what happened at Boeing with the 737. Uh, it is vivisected in painful detail by the New York Times article, which is excellent. But it's not like we're going to get less complex in large organizations anytime soon. This sort of thing, this arms race between complexity and your communication ability to govern the complexity, you got to get ahead of it because if you don't, you wind up with these huge risks that nobody knows about until they strike and we all are left standing around saying, how did this happen? Um, and then 5,000 words later in the New York Times, that's, you find out how it happens. Well, that's too late. Um, so that's, that, that was my big impression with this article. I thought it was an excellent teachable moment for the industry. I would encourage every compliance professional and indeed every business professional to read this article because it does lay out in excruciating detail, much more than Matt and I have gone into the steps that each siloed portion of Boeing took and how each was uh, apparently correct within its silo, yet there was no overall sense of the changes, what the changes meant uh, going forward. And you could uh, see if you just uh, kind of replace compliance for the word safety, you see exactly how a catastrophic failure could occur uh, in a compliance program uh, leading to bribery and corruption, money laundering, export control violations, or a wide variety of other areas. I was talking with a risk manager in the UK not long ago, and he used this great turn of phrase I really like. He says, enterprises don't just need to think about their own risks. You need to think about sort of the systemic risk within the ecosystem that you operate. Um, and I really like the point he was trying to convey is not just so much are your risks all in a row internally, but more do you understand the risks to your whole industry? Do you understand your role or how other people other organizations, they might have problems that have consequences for you. Competitors merging, competitors buying com suppliers, things like that. Um, I also think that while we are talking here about operational risks that Boeing couldn't see coming, the same sort of dynamic, each little pocket is managing risks unto itself but not really thinking about the whole and how risks for the whole might then come back and bite all of us on the rear, that's the financial crisis in 2008. That's what that was, where everybody who was operating in the credit default swap market was thinking, I've protected myself, I've passed the wrong risk to somebody else. The risk is still there. And just because you have gotten rid of the risk for you, that doesn't necessarily mean it's gone away. And I mean, we could talk for days and days about how to govern all of this, but the point is applicable beyond many different or for many different types of organizations and threats. Not just am I doing my own thing for my anti-corruption? 
Am I doing my own thing for my company? This can apply to financial risks, operational risks, whole huge enterprise risks. It's about your ability to communicate the significance to other players in your business ecosystem. Within one company, it's all the little departments working together. Within an industry, it's all the companies and suppliers working together. But this is what it is, and I think this is a big risk management challenge for the, the 2020s and years beyond. Well said, Matt. Well said. So, uh, great into today's podcast, and I look forward to seeing what we come up with for next week. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox again. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of Compliance Into the Weeds. We'll link to the New York Times article in the show notes of this podcast. And if you have any questions, you can email me at tfox at tfoxlaw.com. You can email Matt at mkelly at radicalcompliance.com. I hope you enjoyed today's episode, and I hope you'll join us again next week when Matt and I take a deep dive into another compliance-related issue. Compliance Into the Weeds is a part of the Compliance Podcast Network and now part of the C-Suite Radio Network as well. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.